SBC Media. Hello and welcome to Cinema Reels, the gambling movie podcast where we talk about which movies are the film equivalent of a natural nine and which need to be thrown out with a comically large baccarat paddle. I'm Jessica Wellman, possessor of two useless film degrees and the editor of SBC Americas, and I'm joined by SBC Media's commercial director, John Cook, and our multimedia editor, James Ross. John, are you laughing at my editor credentials? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I like all that. I've got I've got an undergrad in film stu- film and media studies, and it is pointless. I think someone's crying. <laughs> that actually broke me. <laughs> <laughs> Ten seconds in, and I'm broken. <sighs> Deep I breaths. don't know why you're broken because today is going to be an absolutely glorious day because no, we are talking about the 1967 film Casino Royale, which is a Bond spoof, and I think we'll get a certain amount of Bond talk in here. But we're going to start with, what is your favorite James Bond song? James, we're going to start with you because I'm waiting for you to be like, I've never heard a song until today. I don't know what music is. <laughs> Again, you're not going to be disappointed. Um, You've never heard a James Bond no. song? <laughs> That's a lie. Um, I've, heard of a, I've heard James Bond songs. Uh, I only watched my first James Bond last night, which was Goldeneye. Um but I didn't know these were songs from James Bond. Uh, Louis Armstrong's um, We Have All the Time in the World. Okay. Really like that song. Didn't know it was a Bond song. And this one, kind of in hindsight, I should have known, is Live and Let Die by Winks. Um, okay, so this is, I think John will understand because he's about my age, that mine is also Live and Let Die uh, because a certain band covered it in the 90s. Yeah. And that band was everything that I listened to, which was Guns N' Roses. Yeah. So um, uh, I learned to love the Guns N' Roses version. But I'll be honest, like, I have a soft spot for Wings. People bag on it, but, like, they had some <laughs> some bangers. I actually think I heard that song for the first time in Shrek 2. Like, Why is it always <laughs> a cartoon, James? Why is it always a cartoon? John... <sighs> I'm sure as the Bond aficionado here, you have. I mean, is it Shirley Bassey? Is it? Are you going to go with a classic or? Yeah, I'm going to be. Oh, I, I really don't want to do this because I didn't think you two would say "Live and Let Die." Um, Yours is also "Live and Let Die." Yeah, it's a jam, man. It's it it's it's more to do with the fact when I was when I was younger, I used to do um, sort of musical theatre, and I also used to sing in like I started singing really young, and I I sort of did live and let die the guns and roses version in a school concert you do, you oh, do it now. i would have given huh do it now absolutely not give us no. an audition go on no it's yeah. not gonna happen i might be able to drag it uh, there might be a youtube clip somewhere molly try and find that i might be able to drag that up at some point but look i'm gonna be i'm gonna be slightly different because uh yeah live and let die is my favorite song but you can't not mention Shirley Bassey, considering I think she's the only one that's done two uh, Bond songs. Oh, oh, that's a good question. Who has only done two Bond songs? 
I think it's just yeah, her. It's just Shirley Bassey. What's disappointing too is like the ones that have won Oscars, I think are just like the most unmemorable, stupid songs, like Skyfall and Yeah. That weird um Billy Eilish one. Like ugh. It shows you how bad best song is in general as a concept. Um that a song that just plays over the credits and has no real value. I didn't realize Duran Duran and Haha did a Bond song for oh, until yeah. I had to do his research. Madonna, Cheryl Crow. The the garbage the garbage did one. Yeah, but think about it in this way: Bond songs used to be iconic, like absolutely yeah. iconic. Mm-hmm. As we've got closer and closer to the modern day, they've kind of become a little bit mainstream poppy. Like Shirley Bassey, Moonraker, Shirley Bassey, Goldfinger, Live and Let Die, Paul McCartney. That's a really bad impression of Shirley Bassey. Goldfinger. That's the extent of my singing. I can't do it. I'm a terrible singer. All right. I see what you all are doing, which is you're trying to turn this new James Bond song podcast so we don't talk about the glorious movie we are about to talk about. And I will not stand for it. So business out of the way. If you have not seen the 1967 Casino Royale, now is your time to tune out because we will... I say we're going to be spoiling it. I don't know if this movie has a plot per se <laughs> um, that I'm not sure, even if we talk about it, that you will... If you're going to enjoy it, you're still going to enjoy it. That I will say, this is a very rudimentary spoiler alert. I don't really think it makes a difference in this particular case, but... If you are one of those very intense spoiler-averse people, now's your time to tune out. Before you dive into this, can I just say one thing? Irrespective of whether or not we're giving spoilers here, just a little bit of advice to the uh, listeners out there. Don't bother. (laughs) John, this is the second time now. And once more, I might just find a new host. You've got to stop telling people to like... Not watch the movies we're talking about or don't listen no. to our conversation. Like, that's not what a podcast host does. You tell yeah, them true. you should go and see it so that this conversation true. is something you want to true. listen to. True. For the first Sorry. time in these podcasts, I'm actually going to agree with John. Don't bother. I, okay. <laughs> I'm going to make my case. But first, let's set the scene. Casino Royale is a slapdash and madcap parody of the James Bond films featuring David Niven as the original James Bond but several other Bonds as well, including Peter Sellers, Woody Allen, and even Ursula Andress, as well as an all-star supporting cast of everyone from Orson Welles to Deborah Kerr to William Holden. Niven returns to MI6 after the evil organization Smirsh keeps killing off agents in what can only be described as a series of sexcapades, and utilizing this new full fleet of James Bonds, they tried to take down the evil Le Chiffre and Smirsh. The pedigree of this film may have been all-star, but was the end result the sum of its parts? What is this face? Uh, this is not something I recognize. <laughs> it just sounds like sorry, gobbledygook sorry, sorry. when you say it. Anyway, please carry on. I'm done. Thank you. Initial thoughts on this film. Get your anger out now. This is a safe space. James? I, I, it was dreadful. Um... I'm trying to think the best way to kind of be a bit nice about it. I don't know if I had to, if you had to appreciate James Bond or to know of Bond prior to watching this film from the books, from the Fleming books. I couldn't connect to it at all. 
uh, it had that kind of slapstick comedy, which I only really saw previously in Airplane. Not a massive fan of it. I thought the comedy in it was just excessive. I'm a fan of subtle comedy. Everything about it just didn't really fit into what I love about a film. Okay, fair. John? That was me being nice. That was you being nice. Um, While I absolutely agree with James, I think there is a fundamental problem with this film. And the fundamental problem is that it wasn't actually meant to be a film. It was meant to be five or six individual smaller spoofs that were all schmushed together into... And I wonder if that's why they called it schmush or whatever the evil group is. Turns out, I thought smush was just like a funny word. Turns out that's actually like a Russian counterintelligence, like a, a Russian bad guy group from back in the day. It actually was. Oh, Okay. Smirsh. I just thought it was just like some goofy guy in a writer's room was like, what's a funny word to say over and over again? Smirsh. But it historically actually a thing. Yeah. But, uh, look, because it was all just smirshed together, um, <laughs> it was kind of, it just made absolutely no sense. And I have to agree with James, the comedy was... It wasn't really slapstick, though. It was beyond slapstick. It was just kind it was of like... Absurdist, point- I think. It was absurdist, yeah. That's the best way of putting it. It was completely absurd. My note said, stupidity at its worst. Uh, I liked this line from Roger Ebert. He said, this is possibly the most indulgent film ever made, which I am inclined to agree with. So here's what I'm going to do right now. I'm going to give you guys a little bit of background on this film that will explain a lot of why chunks of it feel smirched together and why other pieces you feel like you're like, how did we get here? What just happened? So Charlie Feldman produced this movie and obtained the rights to this Ian Fleming book. However, you know, over in another world, MGM starts making Bond movies with Sean Connery. What Charlie Feldman wants to do originally is essentially take the magic of what's new Pussycat. If you ever saw that movie, it also has... Peter Sellers and Woody Allen in it, who are both in this movie, and kind of recreate it with Casino Royale. Goes through a bunch of writers. Uh, Billy Wilder wrote a treatment of this. Ben Hecht wrote a treatment of this. Uh, Joseph Heller, the author of Catch-22, wrote a treatment of this. So it took a while to get a script together. They finally get a script together, and the script is essentially that section in the middle with Peter Sellers and Orson Welles. Which is the book, you know, Le Chiffre is a Baccarat player, Peter Sellers is Bond, etc., etc. They start making this movie. So first off, uh, I was watching a documentary about this because I did want to understand a little more. Like the the DP, the cinematographer on this movie, someone was like, Ursula Andress never looked better because the DP took four hours to light like a single shot of her. So that was really slow. Then on top of it, Orson Welles and Peter Sellers hated each other. So they thought they were going to get along. They get there. They hate each other. Peter Sellers, they set up a master shot where they're both in the frame. Peter Sellers pulls the director aside and says, I refuse to be in the same shot as Orson Welles. So this just becomes increasingly untenable and difficult. Peter Sellers doesn't show up half the time. And so what happens is they are like, we have have no other choice. We have to fire Peter Sellers. Yeah, he left early, right? Yeah, so they fire Peter Sellers and then proceed to be like, well, what do we have and how do we jerry-rig a movie around it? And that's where the David Niven piece comes in. 
and where they create that segment at the beginning, that's actually directed by John Huston, which mm. is like crazy to think about. Apparently, he was settling a gambling debt. Um, so they're like, okay, well, we'll make it so that there are a bunch of different bonds, and he's just kind of the main alternate bond in the middle, and they're all taking down Smirsh together. And so that's why it's super disjointed. At the end of the day, this film had five different directors. Um, it had, you know, probably 40 different versions of a screenplay. Many and most days they were showing up on set and it was being rewritten day of. So that's why it's an incredibly disjointed piece where like there's that moment where Peter Sellers like randomly jumps in a race car and yet you don't see him drive the race car anywhere. And next thing you know, he's being tortured psychologically by Orson Welles and it doesn't make a lot of sense. That's why. So for me... I give a certain amount of partial credit. It's kind of like why Bohemian Rhapsody won Best Editing. It's not because it's a particularly well-edited movie. It's because the guy who edited it inherited an absolute shit show and managed to put together something coherent out of it. And for that reason, we get, we felt bad for you and we gave you an Oscar. I don't think that this is coherent, but I think there are so many moments of this that are just so absurd and so hilarious to me that I was just delighted and surprised the whole time at things that were happening. Wow, silence. No, that didn't compel you guys at all, did it? No. Well, look, finally, finally it kind of makes a little bit of sense as to why it was so dreadful. But it, there were just things in it that were just so weird. Just odd. Like? You, like the opening scene, you have like this Scottish dude that's died that i don't really know who he is it's john houston no i'm just talking about in terms of oh, the film okay. who the character is and why why there's like this scottish dude that dies and his his um widow he's M. yeah so m dies right his widow's there but the widow just basically suddenly becomes sexually charged with towards bond and then starts speaking french and it's just so confusing. It's just completely confusing to me. It's not the real widow. It's Smirsh has infiltrated this Scottish castle. I, like, call me a five-year-old. I find the Scottish accents hilarious in general. And I especially find incredibly attractive people doing Scottish accents hilarious. Because it's just like, nothing makes a woman incredibly unattractive more, more quickly than, like, an absurd Scottish accent. So, uh... And Deborah Kerr, do you guys know Deborah Kerr? John, you know. certainly do, right? Like, she's the prim and proper quintessential, like, proper British lady. She's Anna and the King and I, and she's in an affair to remember. And her just being this, like, sex-obsessed, Scottish-accented weirdo was just on a bingo card of things I didn't think existed in the world. So getting to see Deborah Kerr do this, like, completely wackadoo out there thing was such an absolute delight to me for 10 minutes that even though it didn't make a lot of sense and that section went on too long, I was in love with it. James, I think James might've died or replaced us with a screenshot of James. Yeah, no, I've just left this conversation now. Um, I, I can understand where you're coming from in terms of the production side of things and then also the post-production. But you get to a point, and you see it in modern cinema now, if you have that much of a mess in the production side of things, the film will be scrapped. 
it will be done. And the best thing for this film would have been to been scrapped. Do you think that's why they just basically had a ridiculously large cast of stars? Yes. Like there was some amazing people in there. And like there was a cameo with my favorite com- comedian in the world, Ronnie Corbett. Like, let's play a quick game. James, I want you to name the people you recognize in this movie. Woody Allen. Um, Woody Allen. <laughs> Honestly, I think that's it. You don't know Peter Sellers or David Niven or oh, Orson P- P- Welles? Uh, Peter Tool. Peter O'Toole. Peter, yes. Peter O'Toole. I, from, I know him from Gladiator. Um, that's about it. There's not a cartoon Peter O'Toole was in that you could tell us about? <laughs> not that I can remember, no. So this is where I will argue some of the reason you don't appreciate what I appreciated about it is because you don't know who these people are. Like yeah. Orson Welles and all of the magic tricks, I was cackling. Like with the flags and stuff, I was falling off the couch dying because like Orson Welles and his obsession with magic over the years has always been hysterical to me. But like, yeah, you're just like, it. oh, here's this guy doing magic tricks. Why? Exactly. That was kind of my thoughts when I was watching it. Cause I actually really liked that scene. I think it was probably one of the best scenes in the film, but then that kind of just threw me off a little bit. I was just like, I don't understand what's going on. I mean, John, you, you know, some of them. Yeah, Ursula Andrews, David Niven, Ronnie Corbett, Orson Welles. Ronnie Corbett? Quite a few. Yeah, Ronnie Corbett's in it. He's the little... He, I love Ronnie Corbett. The ability for him to do actor, a sort of accents in a comedic way is just glorious. He's the only one where I actually went, oh, it's Ronnie Corbett, I'm going to watch this. Where everyone else was just sort of like... He was the, he was the kind of butler that told one of the female James Bonds about I think if I'm right the female James Bond in that one it was Joanna Pettit yeah Marta Bond yeah I think she was the one that got um is he the cab driver no no he's the oh he's he's the the, creepy little weirdo he's the creepy little weirdo yeah that comes in and like chases her around the room and it's like more inappropriate sexual innuendo. That's something, right? This film is just rammed with sexual innuendo and not just sexual innuendo, offensive sexual innuendo. You kind of think that it was 1967, right? You kind of think that people are going to be a little bit prudish back then and that the whole world has become a little bit more open and free through the 70s and the 80s and like everyone's a little bit more... uh, Easy now, but my lord, some of the stuff in there, I was offended by. <laughs> but maybe that's yeah. just because we're reversing time to a certain extent with what people can say and what they can't say. But it's 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 kind of really weird. And I thought some of the accents were really weird as well. The, the Scottish accents were just, I thought they were awful in them. I love a bad Scottish accent. It's hilarious. Going to your point about like the offensiveness, I absolutely agree. I, I think looking at them through a modern day lens... It was ridiculous how much like they kind of got away with. Just move away from all the kind of male gaze things. You've got the animal, the use of animals in there. I've already mentioned this beforehand, but that was just beyond ridiculous. 
then the end scene when you have the kind of the Indians, the Indians the coming Americans, through, yeah. the Native Americans coming through, and then dancing around a fire pit, and it's just I'm just like, what is going on? Yeah, there's also a a scene where Joanna Pettit does like a a Thai style dance. That's I, as someone who watches a lot of old movies, I'm very reticent to ever look at an old movie through the lens of current day. That's just to me an Mm -hmm. unproductive approach to things. I get that some people disagree with me and that's fine. Um, I will say some of this is a critique of what was happening in the Sean Connery, James Bonds that was not being done tongue in cheek and was like really ridiculous like, I mean, there's a James Bond mo- movie called Octopussy, which is just absurd, <laughs> you know? Like, so the whole fact that, like, David Niven has to come back because essentially all of these James Bonds are dying because they've been, you know, lured into brothels and unavoidable sex capades is kind of funny to me. And I, I really wish we had seen more of that guy Coop that they brought in to be the James Bond that resists all the women there's like the scene in the gym where he's like practicing how to resist all the women. I was like, this is actually charming and I enjoy this and I wish I saw more of him. Yeah, I did like that scene, I must admit. There's, um, you can tell that they're the sp- it's a complete spoof of other Bonds and so on because they they make some very obvious references to other, to other sort of Bond films like Dr. New rather than Dr. <laughs> no. That's in there quite a lot, and obviously you have money pennies in there, and you talk about sort of the they're all young and beautiful women and so on, and all of that's quite obvious. It it just still made me slightly cringy when, like, you have Peter Sellers sitting in a bath and he's being washed by a supposed seventeen-year-old. That's David Niven. But... Oh, sorry, David Niven's in a bath and being washed by a supposed seventeen-year-old, and then there's. There's a bit where is it David Niven again outside of Downing Street? Doing what? So they're just about to go into Downing Street, and his daughter says, uh, "Yes, yes, Daddy is really sexy." Uh, and then he goes around. Did the did the finishing school teach you that? <laughs> no, I taught them. I bet Mummy would have taken me in there. Your mother took everyone in. How 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 do they get away with that sort of stuff? It's just so wrong. I find I just... it fun. Like I, I, as the woman on the podcast, I'm wholly unoffended by any of the things in this movie. The only bit that I find um, amusing about this movie is that basically Bond can do Casino Royale until the end of end of the century because of the rights. So they had to wait all the way through until the sort of 2000s to be able to do Casino Royale, uh, which made me feel quite quite happy about it. Yeah, and if you've seen Casino Royale, like I was like, oh, okay, I get what's in the book now because mm-hmm. the Baccarat scene, that weird torture scene that I thought in Casino Royale, I was like, the Daniel Craig version. I'm like, this is weird. What is this? That was in the book, I suppose, because it's in this version as well. So- you know what this film should have been in the nineteen sixties? Austin Powers. That's well, what this see. should have been. Because Austin Powers is basically a piss take of this, right? Yeah, you can see so much like the bed, the rotating yeah, bed yeah, yeah. scene and all of those things. You see the Austin Powers inspiration. I think, you know, you get to the end where all of a sudden William Holden is like, the the US has arrived and the cowboys come in. It's 
you can see where like Mel Brooks is getting some influences from this. I think I think as much as this movie is consensus, the agreement is this movie is a failure across, you know, I'm the rare person that finds this endearing. Like I see what it inspired down the way and I see like, oh, okay, this actually has a place in film comedy history where it is doing things that I see in movies later on and I appreciate it for that. I will also say there are parts of this movie that is that are just stunning, like really beautiful. Those Matahari Mataban costumes, that green chiffon dress that I would I would physically harm people to get a version of that dress. It was so pretty. Like there was a lot of really good production design in this as well. I thought the locations that they used in the film was really nice. Like the entry into that kind of Scottish Highland area, nice and scenic views. You had the was it what was the temple scene? I think you might have just mentioned it then. Thought it was really nice and cool. The casinos, the um, scene was cool. Yeah, the casino was cool. The back office room was slightly odd. That but... was that was riddled with a lot of um a lot of weird ornaments in that room. Mm. We're gonna we're gonna move on to the important questions here. Did you have a favorite character in this movie? Yes. And he or she was? It was Woody Allen. Um, okay. He is a hairy man. Yeah, he's very hairy. Very hairy for a small man. Um, one scene is the reason I liked him, and it was his introduction scene when he, I think it was in Morocco or something like that. He's about to be executed. Yeah, he's about to be executed. He's trying to talk his way out of it. It's like, oh, I'm... I'm partial to not being shot or something like that. Or would you shoot me if I said I was pregnant? And then when he goes to the lineup, um, he's like, oh, have you got a cigarette? Um, I was, I'm going to quit these in the next few days. And I'm like, yeah, because you're about to get shot. Um, I thought that was just a really funny scene. And I've just done it no justice whatsoever. But I think that was a really good Woody Allen S scene, which you're probably renowned. He's probably renowned for in his films and then one liners. Um, really liked him. Didn't really understand the twist at the end. Well, I didn't foresee the twist at the end, but didn't really like him at the end. But that scene kind of highlighted for me. All right, John, any character you liked in particular? I quite like the taxi driver, actually. I don't know who that he was. was but I thought it was hilarious how they they got put in a taxi to go from sort to of go to West Germany. Whitehall to Western Germany and he he had a huge sort of the the statement of West or East Germany West oh yeah yeah good and then he gets out and goes all right Marco where can I find a fish and chip shop uh which I thought was kind of funny um but my real favorite one was probably Ronnie Corbett just because I love Ronnie Corbett I know that's such a bad cop out but he was amazing his cameos are brilliant no, I liked his little his little piece was fun. Yeah. Um, I'll give a shout out to sorry. I'll give a shout out to Nevin as well. Um, David Nevin was it? Is correct? Nevin. Nevin, sorry. Mm, um, that's Nevin. Sir James Bond, isn't it? The the older one. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Out of all the Bonds in there, he's the only one that I can actually stand on the screen for more than five minutes. Um, so I'll give him a shout out as well. For me, it's it's close. Orson Welles is up there, but. Again, Deborah Kerr just being this unhinged lady was so amazing, given like what her type is and what she's known for, that I'm going to give it to her. Okay. I just, I just found it so difficult. 
Do you have a least favorite character? You can only pick one. Do you remember the the argument that you had for Lockstock where you said there was just too many characters? And you didn't care? Mm. And I didn't care. There was too many characters in this that not only did I not care, I just can't remember from the top of my head. Um, I entirely agree with you, but I kind of felt that Jimmy Bond, the cousin, was that Woody Allen? The nephew. That's Woody Allen. That's Woody Allen. That was Dr. No. That that whole Jimmy Bond sort of bit of it, it was just... It was weird. I just didn't get it. I didn't get it. And the invisible glass and accidentally breaking the invisible glass and all that rubbish. I just thought it was a little bit... I didn't, you know what, Quite you know messy. what character didn't resonate with me? The girl who was like, he had trapped and strapped to that chair. Oh, yeah. Yeah, what was that about? I, don't, I was like, where did this girl come from? And why is she like suddenly being treated like a main character? I would say that was my least favorite. Was it, she was introduced with the James Bond who's resisting all the women, wasn't she? Maybe. Yeah, so she was introduced as kind of this, I wanted to say like a female James Bond or like someone who could like repel James Bond or seduce James Bond in any way. Gotcha. Um, I've got it. I know what my favourite character was. Okay. The milk float. The milk float? The milk float. The car chase at the start, there was a milk float in the car chase. And you've got... That car chase was so ridiculous. I think it was like an an old Jag versus like a big car and then versus the milk float and the milk float was keeping up. It was ridiculous, but it still made me laugh. That made me laugh. All right, moving on. Would you back the Peter Sellers bond in Baccarat? Yes. I would as well. He apparently was some sort of Baccarat expert, had worked on Baccarat strategy. Like, he seemed to play well, given my understanding of Baccarat. Take my money. Uh, My only concern is, like, if he's going to run off and disappear like real life Peter Sellers, I might not get paid. But, James, anything to add? Um... See, again, when I was watching this scene, it just felt like there was no strategy or anything. It just felt, oh, all in, here we go. So I'm going to say no, because I just felt like he was just really lucky. Do you know how to play Baccarat? No. No. That might explain some of it. So the goal in Baccarat is to get nine. So, you know, um, when you have a five, you can choose to take a third card, but, you know, and it's the full deck. I know you really only kind of see two through five. It is a full deck card game. So what he did on the big hand was actually, I thought, a really well done version of how to convey someone's good at cards. He has a five, which is not super strong, but the way he plays it and his demeanor suggests to Lashif that he has something strong. So he who also has a five chooses to draw, draws another five and then has a 10, which is a zero in Baccarat and loses. And so oh. like through his play, he convinced this guy to make a move where he would have tied the hand. And it actually, I think is the banker. He might, you win. I don't know if there are pushes in Baccarat. And he convinced, you know, persuaded him very subtly to to make a play that ended up losing. Okay. So played the, played the man in the game. Okay. Um, I'll, you know, I'll, t- I'll retract my comment. I'll back him then. To give you guys a little more on the on the gambling piece of this, so in this instance, Lashifer did what's called buying the bank, which means you act as the banker. That's why he's the one pulling the cards. Okay. Um, if you're wondering, you're like, yeah, 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 I was. 
so when you buy the bank, you act as the banker and you're playing against everyone who is at the table. Uh, the banker sees what card is being given to the person who draws a third card before they turn it over. So it is slightly advantageous to be the banker, even though there's a bigger fiscal responsibility. Those paddles, that's a real thing. You don't see it as much in casinos anymore, but like back in the day, those big paddles, because the back rat table is rather large, are used to scoop cards and chips because the dealer can't reach them. The infrared glasses and the markings on the back of the cards, that is an actual cheating scam that people used to do quite a bit. You get ultraviolet marker, you mark the back of the pen, you wear tinted sunglasses, you see which cards are marked. So is there like a general rule where you don't wear glasses in the... No, it's just more, um, you can wear glasses, but they'll probably see that you're up to something. Um, I think they've probably made decks that are more resistant to those kinds of markers too. Um, all right, now that you guys have gotten a little Baccarat lesson, any more questions about the gambling in the movie? Not from me. I do have one question. Sorry, because it was on to the hand that he had. He had a five, mm -hmm. correct? Is that seen as a strong hand in Baccarat, or is it seen as just an average hand and he did just play the person? It's a mediocre hand, yeah. I, I don't play Baccarat enough, but again, your goal is to get a nine, uh, but you don't want to end up like with a 10 or something, you know? So if you have a five, you're you're looking for, you have some combinations that can improve you. You have some that can't. Um, and, you know, a face card would essentially leave you with a five, two for reasons. Um, but yeah, it's not the strongest hand, no. Um, but you saw that on the previous hand, he stayed on a five and Le Chiffre, drew and and did better this time he stayed on a five again and goaded him into um drawing and going over i'm going to play devil's advocate here because you both said yes i'm going to go return to my original answer and say no because if that's an average hand and the money that was played too too big of a gamble for me too big of a gamble All right, fair enough didn't they have the same hand though twice didn't they both he have had fives five. twice? He had five both times. And then, no, I think Le Chiffre had maybe like a four or something and made, and he made, he had a four, he drew a five, he made a nine. So here's what's going to happen. We're going to ask whether or not Casino Royale is better than our existing leader in the clubhouse, the non-gambling movie, Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels. So, uh, I think, James, we know where you land. Is Casino Royale better or worse than Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels? It's worse, but I'd also argue that there's just as little gambling in this film, apart from that 10-minute uh, casino scene, than Lock, Stock. I mean, yeah, there's not as much as you would think the title Casino Royale has in it. I would argue it's immensely better done, but f uh, fair enough reasoning. And, and you're still voting for Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels, I assume. Oh, yeah, by a country mile. John? No. Um, I can't do that because I, I disagree with you. I think there is more gambling in this than Lock, Stock. Th there's more, just not a substantial amount. And it's a fairer representation of what gambling is. So based on what I said at the end of the last episode, that it was unfair for Lock, Stock to be top of the clubhouse no i hate this film ridiculous oh so so, it's, so you think this is a better film than lockstock 
absolutely not. But I'm doing this based on the fact that it needs Lockstock needs to go. John, have I ever told you how much I love you for your principles? Because- yeah, no, because that that is it's literally tearing me apart. I'm glad it's tearing you apart. I'm so excited then because we. Talk- oh, actually, you know what? I'm going lock stock. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you got my hopes up for nothing. No, I can't do it. I can't do yes. it. It's so bad. Yes, <laughs> I was so excited. I can't do it. I can't. Oh my god. I can't. You it's monster. so bad. It's so All right. bad. Oh. I am positively gutted and gobsmacked to say that Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels remains the leader in the clubhouse and is the first movie to do so for two weeks in a row, even though it is neither good nor a gambling movie. I'm so sorry. I'm so monster. sorry. You monster. You <laughs> monster. <laughs> That was the evilest thing you've ever done. <laughs> I just, no, I just couldn't. Gentlemen, I know we said on our last episode that James was going to do the quiz for this. In hindsight, I'm relieved because given he can only identify one person in this, I can't fathom what the questions would have looked like. <laughs> um, I, 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 we better know our Woody Allen trivia, apparently. Uh, I, I am relieved as well. So We yeah. may or may not have gotten a complaint from the group here at Cinema Reels internally about the fairness of these quizzes. And I, as quiz maker... Uh, <laughs> don't want to identify the person who was upset with the nature of how the game was being played, but we James. I- What was that, John? What was that, John? James. Oh, I'll I'll own it right now. I complained. <laughs> yes. I outright complained. Complain. I think I have a solution here. And I also think that it's time to up the stakes, which means We're going to have a contest where your scores in this are cumulative over a series of six episodes. That being said, we are still going to declare show-by-show winners, and you get to pick which movie is on which side of the die, but I think cumulative scores are probably going to be more important to you than undercutting someone by a single year when providing your answer. Okay. All right. I'm glad we're all in agreement. Here we go. The Burt Bacharach song, The Look of Love, was nominated for the Best Song Oscar, but it did not win. Which of these songs fellow nominees did? A, The Eyes of Love from Banning. B, Talk to the Animals from Dr. Doolittle. C, Bare Necessities from The Jungle Book. And D, Thoroughly Modern Millie from Thoroughly Modern Millie. Uh, Since James lost last week, John, you will answer first. I genuinely don't know. But the first one you mentioned, I was like, nah, never heard of it. And then the next three, I was kind of like, oh, definitely that. Definitely that. Um, It's not going to be Thoroughly Modern modern Millie. Bare Necessities. Bare Necessities. James? Can you read the questions? Uh, the answer to me again, please. The Eyes of Love from Banning, Talk to the Animals from Dr. Doolittle, Bare Necessities from the Jungle Book, or Thoroughly Modern Millie from Thoroughly Modern Millie. 
talk to the animals. The answer is talk to the animals from talk Dr. Doolittle. Yeah. I don't, that's not how that song goes. I don't sure. know it, but I'm going to do it. <laughs> He, he, if he didn't know it, he got the first little bit talked to the animals, right? He didn't get yeah. the rest of it, right? But All right. Later in his career, Orson Welles accepted a wide range of offers to make commercials for various products. Which of these products didn't he shill? A. Frozen vegetables. B. Photocopy machines. C. Gasoline. Or D. Diet pills. James. Um, frozen vegetables. John? He's gone for the one that I wanted to go for, so I'm going to go diet pills. I feel like the other three are just, like, epitomize that era of what was being sold, if that makes sense. The answer is diet pills. Oh, okay. <sighs> you guys have never heard the... I forget. None of you like old stuff. There's, like, it's kind of famous, actually, the... Orson Welles tapes of him like being very disgruntled about the copy about frozen peas and how terrible it is. <laughs> it's a really fun clip to go watch on YouTube. You guys should do it. It's a good time. All right, we are tied one to one. Most James Bond's films have been financial successes. Adjusted for inflation, which James Bond movie, and we're considering all of them except Casino Royale 1967 because... John doesn't think it belongs in that canon. It doesn't. Does the one Warner Brothers one not belong in there either? Good point. But this is a spoof. Okay. So the Warner Brothers one is in play here. But the question is, of all the James Bond movies, we are adjusting for inflation. Which James Bond movie made the least amount of money? A, The Living Daylights. B, License to Kill. D or C octopusy or D never say never again. Believe this is John's turn to go first. License to kill. James. Uh, I was gonna say never say never again. Are you just picking out of just what title sounds fun to you? <laughs> no, it's I, I, I know of. I was even like, for, you know, hey, no frame of reference for this. No, so. I, I, I knew of um, Octopussy and the one that John said uh, that A, I'd never heard of, and D. D, you've never heard of. Never heard of, so I've just gone with product of elimination. Uh, reasonable logic, but the answer is B, license to kill. That's the one with Jaws in it, right? Or is that the one with Jaws? Uh, uh, yeah. There's a bad equal Jaws. I'll be honest, I haven't seen... I've seen a couple of Connery Bonds and a couple of Craig Bonds, and that's it. All I know is this is a Timothy Dalton Bond. That's really surprising. I've heard of License to Kill, so... It's really surprising that Dalton gets up there in terms of, like, highest grossing. Lowest grossing. Oh, lowest grossing. Oh, right. Have you you just looked out there? That... Completely like that because I listened to the question entirely wrong, and to be entirely honest, I didn't know that was Dalton either. Um, but he is the forgotten Bond. This is like the third time, by the way, that you guys have answered a question completely counter to what the question is because you weren't paying attention. Uh, you'll now know why I was being somewhat cagey talking about what beats what in Baccarat because this next question is: Which of these Baccarat hands beats the rest? Oh God. 
Is it A, two fours, B, two fives, C, two eights, or D, two jacks? James. Fours, fives, eights, or jacks? Oh, the audience know that I actually know nothing about Baccarat, so... Two jacks. No idea. Two jacks. Don't do that. That's tactics. No, it's not. And that's, this is just bad game theory. You're gonna you're gonna tail the answer of the guy who admittedly knows nothing. <laughs> I I know nothing about Baccarat. I hate to break it to you, two jacks is the worst hand of these four oh, okay. because it adds up to twenty. Uh, when you are into double digits, you drop the first digit, and it's the second digit that counts as your number. So you have a zero. I just uh, thought because it was a royal card. Like it's two eights adds up to sixteen. It would be a six. Six. Two fives add up to ten. You would it would also be a zero. They're both the worst hand, and the best hand is two fours because it adds up to eight. Uh, and you got to get nine. And you got to get you got to get as close to nine. Yeah. I thought okay. it was a trick question, to be honest. Me too. I love throwing in how does gambling mark questions at y'all. All right. Finally, uh, score recap. By the way, John two, James one. Correct? Yeah, we need to go to a casino, James. We need to learn shit. Yeah, next time you're up. Yeah. I mean, if I know anything, it's that you're not going to study for my quizzes. Uh, you're barely going to pay attention to the questions. <laughs> Peter Sellers and David Niven were part of their own successful franchise, the Pink Panther. David Niven appeared in three of the franchise's nine films. Again, to define, we're pretending those crappy Steve Martin Pink Panthers don't exist. So the nine films that are not the Steve Martin reboot. How many of the nine films did Peter Sellers appear in? A, four, B, six, C, eight, D, nine. John. Hmm. Um, I kind of thought he was the Pink Panther. The Pink Panther is a rock. It's a pink diamond. Yeah, but he was like the person looking for it, right? Um, I'm going to go... I'm going to go for the middle. I'm going to go six. Was that an answer? Four, six, eight, or nine. I'm going to go six. James. Um, I'm going to go low. I'm going to go four. The answer is six. <sighs> Should have copied John. Uh, he did die before a couple came out. Uh, Alan Arkin, actually, may he rest in peace, uh, having recently passed, um, was Jacques Clouseau uh, in one of them. But, uh, you know, he was alive for five of them. And in the six, they used basically leftover footage they had of him to get one mm. more movie out of there. So six. All right. That means standing scores are John three, James one. And it's time to flip our coin. John, tell me <laughs> of these two movies, which is heads and which is tails. We've still not rolled Elvis's Vita Las Vegas. And our other option is definitely Rain Man. I'm going to go. Let's stick Rain Man on heads. Rain Man on heads. Grab your estranged brother. Fire up the vintage car because it is Rain Man. Uh, that is going to be definitely one that we hit next week. I'm going to definitely make that definitely joke a lot. And we'll be talking about our first, I think, best picture best picture winner on the next episode of Cinema Reels. Uh -huh.